doesn't matter where you go, does it, if you don't know where you want to end up, which way. As uh, we're going through our series of being rooted uh, in our mission and vision and purpose of a church, um, the question that comes to me is this, so where are we going as a church? I mean, what's our, what's our end goal in mind? Um, rather, do we have a, a vision of what we want this church to become down the road? Something that we can shoot for and aim for. And then the question is, well, what is a vision? We have a vision statement, but what is a vision? When the Bible talks about a vision, it, it means something that is, that is higher than we can reach by ourselves. It's something that, that if for a church, it's, it's a God thing that He does in us and through us that we're trying to achieve it has to do with finding out what God is up to in our world and then joining Him in doing it. In the Old Testament, the role of the prophet was a visionary, one who was to see, and oftentimes they would be called a seer because they would be able to see what God was about to do and they would communicate that with the people. In Habakkuk, the second chapter, verses 1 and 2, Habakkuk says this, he says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Habakkuk is, is saying simply, I, I want to see what God is up to and what he wants me to do. And so I'm going to stay out here and I'm going to watch for him to give me some kind of sign or signal. And then God simply responds to him, write this vision down and make it so plain that people can understand it. And that when the end, they can run to it and they can accomplish it. Habakkuk wants us to be able to see the vision of God and how that sets our direction in life and what we do, especially as a church. It, it keeps us focused and it helps us to know where to concentrate all of our energy, all of our finances, and everything that we do so that we can fulfill God's purposes, not only in our lives, but also in the life of this congregation of the church. And so a biblical vision comes from God. Proverbs, the 29th chapter, verse 18, says this, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, and some translations say perish. But blessed is he who keeps the law. There has to be some kind of vision that we see so we can achieve that in life. Proverbs is telling us that what happens when there is no vision, when there's no word from the Lord, when there is, there's no direction to go, it says the people, they cast off their restraint. And when people lose their desire to work for God and they unburden themselves and unyoke themselves from His direction then really there's no reason to live much longer. You see, because God asked us that we would pursue Him and His direction, and we would turn and go to His way, and He calls us and He draws us near. Vision is not only the ability to see which way to go, but it also encompasses the idea of which way not to go. Bankers often will, will study paper, money, and they will feel it, and they know what it feels like, and they, they, just the, the weight of it and the touch of it. And so when something comes that's not real and it's counterfeit, they immediately know by the touch, by the feel. 
Well, vision does the same thing for us. We need to know which way God wants us to go, but also it helps us to identify the directions that we ought not go. That's what vision does for us. So what is the vision of the church? Where are we going? What is the desired end of this in mind? Well, our vision here is that we desire to be a church that makes disciples who love God and others with the passion of Christ that transforms families, our community, and our world. Let me state that one more time. Our vision and our desire is to be a church who makes disciples that love God and others with the passion of Christ that transforms our families, our community, and our world. So the question comes to mind is this, what's a disciple? Who is a disciple? Explain that to me. Well, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus tells us that we are to make disciples. Listen to what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, these disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." We are to be making disciples. That's that's a command of Christ as He's preparing Himself to ascend into heaven. He wants His church to understand that our role is to be a church, a group of people who are making disciples who love God and others with the passion of Christ that transforms our families, our community, and our world. So, disciple. I looked at a couple definitions of disciple. This one comes from the Bridgeway Bible Dictionary. It says a disciple is a learner, and the disciples of Jesus, they learn from Him. But merely to learn is not enough. They must put their learning into practice and maintain a consistent obedience if they truly to be Jesus' disciples. They give visible proof that they are Jesus' disciples through practicing genuine love toward each other and through bearing spiritual fruit in their lives. That's one definition. Now there's another definition I found out of Hastings' Dictionary of the New Testament. And, and, and this dictionary says the disciple, looking at the Greek word mathetes, it means more than just one who listens to a teacher. Did you catch that? It means more than just one who listens to a teacher. It implies his acceptance of that teaching and his effort to act in accordance with it. It implies being a believer in the teacher and being ready to be an imitator of him. So if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we're going to learn from him. We're going to study his words. We're going to understand his character and his identity. And not only that, but we are going to try to imitate him in life and be like him so it changes us And it also gives recognition from others when they see us, what they see is not me, but they see Christ in me, that I act like Him, I talk like Him, because I'm trying to imitate Him. That is a disciple. This this past week, Joe Drysdale shared with me an article, and and I thought, this was a good article. And as a matter of fact, I think that's what he said. But it comes from a man by the name of Eric Raymond, who ministers with the Emmaus Bible Church up in Omaha, Nebraska. Eric is writing in his Ligonier blog post about discipleship. And he says this, what does it mean to make disciple? 
A disciple is a learner and a follower of Jesus. When we make disciples, we're working to see people who do not follow Jesus come to follow him. It's at conversion, he says. And then teaching them to faithfully follow Jesus in every area of their lives, which ultimately leads to maturity in Christ. He tells us that many Christians hear this, and they file it away in a cabinet of idealism. Sure, I'd like to disciple people, but I really can't, they say. They fail to feel like discipleship is above their pay grade. He asked the question, well, is that true? Is discipleship above our pay grade, that, that really most of us can't do that at all? He says, is discipleship something that only pastors and elders and the, quote, mature do, or is it for every one of us? That's a good question. And then he makes a statement. He says, here's my main point. Disciple making is ordinary Christianity. Let me, let me state that again. Disciple making is ordinary Christianity. He says it's, it's fundamental to, to it, like, like learning to count and say your alphabet in the natural realm. There is scarcely any part of the Christian life where discipleship does not touch. In, insofar as Christianity is a community faith, it is a disciple-making faith. So we, we, each one of us, when we become a Christian, that becomes a part of the core of who we are. It's just the ordinary thing that is expected by each and every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, that they become a disciple-making person. He goes on and he says, there may be a dozen different paradigms flying around when you hear discipleship. Some people insist on reading a book meeting for coffee, eating a meal, and working out, etc. He says, all these things may aid in the work of discipleship, but they are not a prerequisite for or the, necess or the necessary substance of it. Jesus never gave us a program for discipleship, but he gave us his example and a very broad, far-reaching command to do it. And as a result, we have a great freedom and a great burden to discipleship. So what does it look like? So what does discipleship look like on an ordinary basis in our lives? How do we play that out? How do we impact other people in our lives? So he says, when Jesus commands us to make disciples, he intends for us to live our lives in obedience to him in the presence of other people. Did you catch that? When Jesus makes us a disciple of himself, he expects us to be obedient to his commands in the presence of other people. It's not something we do privately in our own house with the door shut and the windows drawn. We don't do that. He says the, the intention living seeks to show others the worth and the power of Christ in short, discipleship is this. We, we seek to show people how we follow Jesus in just how we live. So he says, here's some examples. And I like these examples because this really is how discipleship takes place. He says, discipleship happens when a guy wants to be married, but he doesn't have a game plan for how to go about it. So he asks another brother in Christ for some guidance and help, and, and this brother takes him out for lunch, and he talks with through some of the biblical and the practical principles, and then he commits to pray for him 
and to be available for questions and to meet occasionally to talk about his progress. That's discipleship. He goes on to say that discipleship happens when a mom with two toddlers drops something off that she borrowed from another sister at church, and during the exchange, they get to talking, and the young woman expresses her feelings of fatigue and failure to measure up and to perceive standards of, quote, motherhood. And so the other woman listens to her, reminds her of some scripture, prays with her, and then continues to come alongside her for encouragement with the gospel. That's a good way of of sharing Christ. Another one is this. Discipleship happens when a dad points out a scantily dressed lady and tells his teenage sons that what they see is not beauty. And then he explains to them what beauty is as it relates to godly character and will. And he continues to tell his, his son and to show them and to emphasize the true beauty that Christ delights in and the type of women God wants them to be. Discipleship also happens when a brother notices his brother is running hard after his job and he's neglecting his family and his ministry for the work and for the, for the money. And he comes alongside his brother to remind him of the true and the lasting treasure and the proper perspective of work. Discipleship happens when a mom is in the park with her children. And at one point the kids become unruly and she patiently, graciously, but faithfully disciplines her children right in the presence of all the other mothers who are around the playground. And there are many watching eyes, and both the believing and the unbelieving women are intrigued, and conversations begin to take place, and soon the fruit of the Spirit points to the matchless worth of Christ and how we are disciplined. It says discipleship happens when a homeschool mom, she breaks away with, with free time, only go to the same coffee house day after day, hoping to make new friends and open doors for sharing the gospel. Discipleship happens when a single woman senses another single woman's discontentment with being single, and she makes it a point to come alongside her and, and, and to encourage her in the goodness of the gospel. You see, discipleship is not just sitting there with the Bible before you and walking up to saying to somebody, let's talk about the Bible. Let me share with you good news. It's not standing on the street corner preaching and trying to convince people of who Jesus is. Discipleship is lived out in a daily basis as an ordinary Christian and how you allow the gospel to change your life and influence those around you have an opportunity to see. Discipleship is very much visual as it is auditory. An atheist once said this, He said, I can stand all the arguing of Christian apologists, but I have a little servant girl who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, and her good, pure, honest, truthful life staggers me sometimes. It's not about her words, but it's about her actions. The one irresistible argument for the gospel power is the regenerated, consecrated life which is demonstrated in us as we live out our daily lives in Christ. The world may miss seeing the life of God within nature 
Because we're told that all we have to do is examine creation and we see his, his invisible qualities. And they may not see it there. But I'm telling you this, when you live as Jesus has asked you to live, they're going to see it. They will notice the difference. And that, my friends, is discipleship. It's coming alongside people and living faithful to Christ, and they learn why. So I ask a second question. If our vision is to to make disciples who love God and others, how do we love God and others? What's he really asking us of us this? And so Jesus responds to a man's question in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37. And he said to him, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the greatest, that's the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law of the prophets. So he's telling us that loving God necessitates that we love other people. You cannot love God and not love others. They have to go hand in hand. And so if we're going to make disciples who love God, they've also got to make the disciples who love others as well. The two are are inextricably bound together, and you cannot love God and not love someone else. I mean, it's the very depth and the core of what God's message to this world is. We can easily quote John 3.16, can't we? For God so loved me that he gave up his son. No. For God so loved the world. And you're a part of that world. And so as God's character is loving we take on that character as well as we are a disciple of Jesus. In fact, God's love does not limit us to only loving those who love us back, like our family or our close friends, or others who belong to the body of Christ in the church. Matter of fact, we should love all those people in all those different categories, but Jesus got further into this expression of love and His command for us to love other people. And so when He was asked in Luke chapter 10, who is my neighbor, He gave a response and a story about a gentleman who had been going down to Jericho from Jerusalem who got beat up by some robbers, and they they left him there lying in the street half dead. He talks about gentlemen walking by and seeing everything that happened, and these men are men of faith, and yet they walked on the other side of the road. But lo and behold comes this man's, what would be classified as his natural enemy, this Samaritan, this good Samaritan, And he stopped and he took care of him. And then he asks the fellow who asked him the question, so who was his neighbor? And he couldn't say the word Samaritan. All he could say was, well, the one who helped him. Who is my neighbor? Jesus wanted to make it very clear, if we love God, then we need to love other people just as God loves them. It means there's no filter. There's no weeding out of people that we don't feel comfortable around, and so we kind of set them aside. It means we love everybody. If we're all fish in the tank, we can't hide from the piranha, can we? We've still got to go to Him and love Him in spite of it. 
You see, in other words, besides loving those that are easy to love, we're to love those who would naturally revile us. Those people who just naturally, they don't like us, they hate us. They, they can be classified as, as unlovely. They can be classified as people that are least admired. And, and, and they could even be somebody in our family who has hurt us. Or maybe they've hurt somebody in our family. Or, or maybe there's somebody who's taken our job or they've done something against us. They could actually be our enemy and we are to love our enemies. That's what Jesus told us. So if we're going to make disciples who love God and others, there's no clarification as to who the others is. You can't filter them down to just a certain person. So why would Jesus command us to do such a thing? Because that's exactly what God did for us, isn't it? Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to make sure that we truly understand what that means, Paul goes on and he says in just two verses later in Romans 5.10, he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. You and I, because of the sin in our lives, became enemies of God. And yet, He loved us. Do you remember some of those words He spoke there while He was hanging on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as they're standing there at the foot of His cross, cursing Him, mocking him, taunting him. He says, Father, forgive him. His love had no boundaries. And your love and my love should have no boundaries either. We should not make a clarification of, I only love those who this. It's all. God loved us when we were not only unlovable, but when we were his enemies, and it was this love, his sacrificial love, that saved us in the midst of, of our sinfulness. And since the Lord loved us in that way, so we too, as his followers, his disciples, we're to love other people the same way. We're to love our neighbor, those who are, who are sinful, those who are unlovely, those who are enemies. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in His Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Because see, that's what Jesus did. And then Paul goes on to write this beautiful description of how Jesus, considering the equality with God, nothing that he should just maintain at that time, but he gave up his glory in heaven as the Son, and he entered into this world, and he took on the very nature and the form of us, a man. But not just any man, a servant of men. Why? 
so that we might be redeemed. Now that's love. Willing to go to whatever extreme it would take to express His love to us. And loving God means loving others. Doing exactly what Jesus did to those who hated and cursed Him and who saw the, and He saw them for who they were. And He didn't consider Himself or His own needs, but He put their needs before Himself. He came to be a ransom and to give His life for us. Humility in Christ then sacrifices our personal desires, our wants, even our needs for the benefit of somebody else. So if we're going to be making disciples who love God and others, there's a sacrifice that takes place there. And so I ask this question, how can we then possess the passion of Christ? That's what we want, isn't it? We, we want to be passionate like Christ. That's going, going to change this world. And we see that passion in Him in so many different ways. In his book, Fan the Flame, J. Stowell Moody writes this. He, he relays a story about Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he says this. He says, Fyodor Dostoevsky was 25 and he had already captured the hearts of Russia with his novel, Poor Folk. Fame quickly went to his head. He drank immoderately, and he partied wildly, and he carelessly criticized the czarist regime of Russia. Probably not the best thing to do. Moody goes on to say, he said, you did not do that in czarist Russia. He was arrested in St. Petersburg, and he was sentenced to death by the firing squad, along with several other dissidents. He says, it was a cold, probably like today, December morning. He was dressed in a white execution gown, and he was led to the wall of the prison courtyard with the others. Blindfolded, he waited for the last sound that he would ever hear the crack of a pistol echoing off the prison wall. You can imagine what's going through their minds. But instead, Moody says, he heard fast-paced footsteps. And then the announcement that the czar had commuted his sentence to 10 years of hard labor. So intense was that moment that we see that Dostoevsky, he went into an epileptic seizure and he passed out. And that's something that would remain with him the rest of his life. And in that Siberian prison, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he was allowed only a New Testament to read, nothing else. And there he discovered something more wonderful more true than his socialistic ideals. He met Christ and his heart was transformed. It was changed. Moody says, goes on, he says, Upon leaving prison, he wrote to a friend who had helped him to grow in Christ. This is what he wrote to his friend. To believe that there is nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable more manly and more perfect than Christ. And not only is there nothing, but I tell myself with jealous love that there can be nothing 
Besides, if anyone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, and it really was so that the truth was outside of Christ, then I would prefer to remain in Christ than with the truth. Dostoevsky, he returned to his civilian life, and he wrote feverishly, and he produced his, his prison memories, the house of the dead, and then crime and punishment. It was followed by a lot of his other works as well. Yet something happened in his life. His church attendance decreased, became sporadic. And he never grew as a Christian. He neglected Bible study and the fellowship of other believers. And no Christian, listen to this, this is key, no Christian took him under his wing to disciple him. So he began to drink, he began to gamble, and excess wasted. Now he left prison with the flame of Christ lit within his heart, and it was burning brightly. But when he died, he died with nothing more than embers. The tragedy of Fyodor Dostoevsky is not so much what he became, but what he could have become in Christ. The words of the poet of all said words of tongue and pen, the saddest words it might have been. What would it be like if we could go back and change the way we talked with somebody else? but now it's too late. Now, the idea behind this word passion is not like what we express here on Valentine's Day. It's not the sexualized or the romanticized expression of the heart, but rather that word passion in the Scripture is in reality connected with an aspect of suffering. So we had a wonderful movie that was made a few years back called The Passion of Christ. You may have seen it. But the passion is not about His love for us. But the passion, really, the word, it deals with the aspect of suffering because of your affection. That you're willing to go to whatever extreme of pain and anguish because of your love for somebody else. It carries it with this idea of willingness to suffer and truly love someone. There is willingness to walk through the flames in order to save them. It puts others at the forefront of everything you do. And no longer do you live for yourself, but as Christ, you live and are willing to die, if need be, for the salvation of somebody else. That is passion. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that's passion. We are to make disciples who love God and others with the passion of Christ. 
that transforms our families, community, and our world. So where does this transformation begin? Acts 1.8, Jesus is talking to his disciples as he's getting ready to go through the clouds of heaven. And he says, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's his final mission for us as the church. That we're to start right where we are, in our own Jerusalem, in our own homes, in the area in which we live and we breathe. We're to begin right here and to make a difference in our community. It starts with me and then it impacts my household and the way that I treat my children and my wife and how I respond to my parents. It's transformation right here in my own living space. And then it just kind of oozes out and impacts everything else. See, he wants us to begin right where we are, and he tells his disciples right there in Jerusalem where you are, you begin taking this and you begin faithful to him, and then you're supposed to spread out to the ends of the earth with this wonderful message of Christ and redemption. And if we're going to transform the world, you and I need to begin right in our circle of influence. Maybe that's your family. The power of the gospel does the work of the transformation. It's not about what we do. It's what he does in us and through us. And it oozes out to others. The psalmist said, my cup overflows. We have more than we need because of the grace and the goodness of Christ. And we need to share that with others. We just need to be faithful in taking the message of Christ wherever we go. In Acts chapter 11, Peter heads back to Jerusalem after he had a little quick jaunt over to Caesarea by the sea where he met a Roman soldier and his household because God had, had created this vision for him to see and to obey. And he did. And as he went into this Roman soldier's house, he discovers that he is a worshiper of God and has been for a long time, and he's highly respected. And now God miraculously transforms not only the life of this man, but also his entire household, and things are changed. And later on, you go to Acts chapter 16, and we meet a businesswoman who, who, who sells fine clothing and material made of the beautiful purple dyes that are in their area, Philippi and Thyatira. She also is a worshiper of God, and, and, and God has captured her, her attention, and she, he wants him to, her to listen to Paul. And so Paul comes and he preaches to her the good news and the gospel message of Jesus, and she's confronted there with that, and she too becomes a Christian along with her whole household. Then a jailer working the night shift is confronted with a situation that is so disastrous and devastating that he's about to take his own life because of what has just transpired through that night. And before he's able to do that, come morning, he and his entire household have become Christians. They have put their faith in Jesus because the gospel message transforms lives. 
It's not about us changing them. It's about us living and encouraging them. And we allow the Spirit of God to do the work in their lives. You see, over and over again, people are transformed by the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it begins right with me into my family and into my community and into my world. About 400 years ago, a ship loaded with travelers, they landed on the northeast coast of the United States of America. But it wasn't the United States at that time. Their first year there, they established a town. They made a place where they could live. The next year, they elected a, a, a town government. The third year, the town government planned to build a road five miles into the wilderness. And the fourth year, the people tried to impeach their government because they thought it was a waste of public funds to build roads five miles westward into the wilderness. Who needed to go there anyway? Now here were people who had the vision to travel over 3,000 miles over the ocean even and to overcome great hardships to get here. But in just a few short years, they were not able to see even five miles out of town. They had lost their pioneering vision. Church, we are pioneers for Christ. And He has given us a vision to go into the world and to change it. But the problem is, like our ancestors here in America, sometimes we lose sight of the vision and we get comfortable right where we are. With a clear vision of what we can become in Christ, no ocean of difficulty is too great. Without it, we rarely move beyond our current boundaries. You see, the vision of the church of Jesus Christ and of this church here in Union is to make disciples who love God and others with the passion of Christ that transforms our families, our community, and our world. Will you accept that as your, your mission, your vision, your desire to make a difference? Just stand with me as we sing. <clears throat> I don't want us to be the same next year on Valentine's Day. I want to see a church that is impacting not only our own household of faith, but this community in which we live. They need to know that Christ is working and active in our lives. And we need to make a difference not only here in Union, but all around the world. The first church, when it began in Jerusalem, seemed like a, an unattainable task. And yet here we are. Through the efforts of many people, 
of many Christians across time. The message of the gospel of Jesus continues when there are people who are willing to make disciples.